You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 13th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Perry DeAngelis. Hey. Jay Novella. Yeah, the Yankees suck. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. In 1983, Pioneer 10 becomes the first man-made object to leave the solar system. In 83? Yeah, 1983. Wait, how... The first man-made object to leave the solar system. Well, how do you define the solar yeah, system? how do you define the solar system? That's too long ago. Maybe maybe it passed Pluto or passed Neptune, Pluto, whatever it was think, farthest yeah. away. But when you uh, when you start t- <laughs> talking about like the heliopause and you know the effect that no, the it solar has not wind, passed the heliopause according to this, uh, or the Oort cloud, O O R T cloud. Yeah, yeah. Um, but leaving the solar system, it's you know, past Pluto, right? Way past Pluto. It is 7.5 billion miles away, I think, as of 2006. The, the first news item that caught my eye was a new Gallup poll just out on belief in evolution and creationism in the United States. The, uh, this is a telephone survey that was done, performed at the, be- at the beginning of June. And surprise, surprise, two-thirds of Americans state that they believe in Creation. This is a Gallup poll. Creationism. Gallup poll. And only about a third in evolution. So there was a two to one margin of creationism. I'm wondering, do you know what exactly the questions were that they. So here's the. Uh, this is a, a, a slightly more recent Gallup poll that's, uh, I think, probably derived from the same data, but this is. Uh, Gallup just published on June. Just published this on June 11th. Uh, under the title "Majority of Republicans Doubt Theory of Evolution," so I think they were just pulling political affiliation out of the same data. And here's the question: Evolution, that is, the idea that human beings developed over millions of years from less advanced forms of life. And then you could answer: Definitely true, probably true, probably false, definitely false, no opinion. So on that, so think of a number here of 18 percent for definitely true, 35 percent for probably true. That would be 53%. Then the other question was creationism, that is the idea that God created human beings pretty much in their present form at one time within the last 10,000 years. There was 39% definitely true, again, as opposed to 18% definitely true for evolution. 27 probably true, so a total of 66% compared to 53 for revolution. There you go, two-thirds. Okay, yeah, that's pretty, uh, pretty terrible, actually. <laughs> but then here's another question. But here's the, in the same poll, they, had, they asked a question a different way, uh, where they had people, the forced choice between these four options. Man developed with God guiding. Man developed, but God had no part in the process. God created man in his present form. So man developed with God guiding was 38% in the, the, the May 2007 uh, poll. Man developed, but God had no part in the process, 14%. And, and God created man in present form, 43%, with four having no opinion. So God had a hand in it. Apparently, 81% of people believe that God had some yes. or all of a hand in creating That's not man. surprising, though. I mean, what's the percentage of people who believe in God in the United States? Yeah, so it's States? probably about I the mean, same. And for only 14% yeah. saying it was purely a natural process, right? If, you gotta believe, if you're going to believe in God, you've got to give him something to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
the next news item uh, is an item that has to do with academic freedom, which is a, a topic that we've talked about before. Uh, there is a, uh, a science blogger, David Colcahoon, who writes the Improbable Science blog he, uh, in the United Kingdom. And he is a professor of pharmacology at the University College London. Uh, and he's a great guy who writes a, a good science blog that is very skeptical. It is very critical of herbalism and homeopathy and pseudoscience and alternative nonsense. And he's very uncompromising, but, but also very professional in how he deals with these issues. Recently, he wrote a, a blog entry where he basically said that claims that a specific herb, red clover, cleanses the blood – that the notion that it quote-unquote cleanses the blood is a, is a scientifically meaningless statement and that it's basically, and this is the word he used, gobbledygook. He said that statement mm-hmm. is gobbledygook. It's a technical term. Right. He also implied that but an herbalist by the name of Ann Walker, who was, who was making these claims, had undisclosed conflicts of interest, you know, where she, uh, relating to her work as an herbalist. Now, her Ann Walker's husband, as well as the uh, marketing director for the University of Reading, where Walker is a lecturer, wrote a complaint to the provost of University College London, UCL, and basically threatened the university with a lawsuit because Improbable Science blog is hosted on the pharmacology section of the UCL website. So the university was hosting the website. As a result of that, the university told Colcahoon to, to remove the blog from the university website, which he did. There was also this other issue, which is really a non-issue, where he had used a graphic from, from this New Vitality website. He like basically copied a, a picture of like Red Clover with their claim underneath it, and they, they claimed that that was copyright infringement, which is, you know, I think that would fall under fair use, but fine. He took their picture off and put a different picture up. That, but that, that was basically a non-issue. So, the, the, you know, this is an issue because this happens quite a bit, and I think that skeptics in particular are vulnerable to this kind of thing, where you know, we're very critical, often very uncompromisingly so, of charlatans or of just bad science, of, of claims that are not justified by the evidence. Especially in the realm of healthcare, it's very important to be able to say that you know, these claims are not justified by the evidence. Um, and to also examine the integrity of the people who are making those claims and profiting from them. And the, and yet they are, um, the other side, are very good at using the threat of lawsuit as a tactic of intimidation in order to silence the skeptics or to silence their critics. Yuri Geller is infamous, infamous for doing that. Um, in, in, among the uh, people that we know, like uh, James Randi, uh, has been subjected to that. Sylvia Brown did that to Robert Lancaster, as we heard from him when we interviewed him. Um, well, most recently, Yuri Geller uh, pressured YouTube to remove a lot of clips that people had posted of him screwing up. Yeah. And he did it under the context of a copyright viola- violation. Um, he's currently being sued over it, uh, which I, I believe they're still uh, – I don't think they've gone to court yet, but – it's looking pretty good for the side of rationality. You know, often the, the, we win these lawsuits, and in all the ones that I'm talking about, the, no one ever successfully sued us because their, their claims are baseless. But the point is to be intimidating and to, to have sort of this chilling effect over the criticism. 
Well, what Yuri Geller did was he claimed to have the copyright on videos that he did not have the copyright on, and he didn't even take anyone to court. He just sent letters to YouTube pressuring them to remove the accounts of the people who had uploaded the videos. So the nice thing about what's happening now is that those people are fighting back and suing him for falsely claiming that he had the copyright. Right. And, and But the bottom line is that this could take lots of time, money, and effort to defend yourself. And if you are right. – and, and, and the skeptics may be you know, perfectly willing to go through that. But in this case, uh, you know, the university uh, was very uh, cautious about that. And of course, their lawyers tell them, oh, you know, put as much distance as you can. Uh, also, in the United Kingdom, it's worth mentioning that the laws there are very favorable towards the plaintiffs in a, in a libel or slander suit. And in fact, it puts the – defendant on the defense, the burden of proof is on them to prove that their statements were true. It's not, the burden of proof is not on the plaintiff to prove that the statements that were made were false, which is what the way the laws are in the United States. Uh, so it's really easy to intimidate people and silence your critics by, by making these frivolous lawsuits. And this lawsuit, this threat rather, was completely frivolous. I mean, they're basically saying that the term gobbledygook was libel. I mean, that's ridiculous. So in any case, you know, and and the initial response was, "Well, you know, show me how anything I said was wrong, and I'll and I'll happily change it." And they they could not challenge him on, on the science of anything he was saying, and that's the point. When they can't challenge us on the facts, on logic, on evidence, then they go they they just try to use intimidating, bullying tactics, basically. So it's understandable that the university would have been very skittish in this whole maneuver. I was disappointed when they decided to uh, to, to do this and not stand a little bit more courageously, you know, behind Dr. Kokohun. But but the, the today, just today, in fact, they they did uh, come to a decision where they've made some alterations to the website. I guess the, the lawyers were were finally happy with some wording, and they're going to put it back onto the UCL website, which, which is a good thing. Um, but you know the, the reason why this is you know this may seem like a small issue, but really it isn't because it's it's very significant to what degree claims are affiliated with institutions of academia. You know, academic institutions really are it's in many ways the gatekeepers of of legitimate scholarship. They also certainly lend credibility to scholarship, or they could you know, they could withhold that from from claims or endeavors or disciplines. So we, we've been very dismayed. Uh, on the show, certainly over the last 10 or 20 years, about the degree to which nonsense has infiltrated academia under the guise of whatever, multiculturalism or open-mindedness or other ways of thought or whatever. But really, it's just bad science getting into into universities um, and masquerading as real science. And if at the same time, those few scientists who are courageous enough to say, hey, that's nonsense, and it shouldn't be legitimized. If they're going to be silenced by these really easy, frivolous, you know, uh, intimidation lawsuits, then that that could be an extremely bad trend. So it, it was good to see that you know a lot of science bloggers jumped on this issue, you know, came to his defense, wrote letters to the provost, myself included, and I blogged about it this week, so you could read about it, and that the, very quickly you know, a, a reasonable decision was made. But I think we have to be vigilant about this kind of thing and really jump on it when it happens. Absolutely. Another, another item which is also sort of the intersection of, of science and legality, uh, we've, I've spoken on this show before about the false controversy, really, that mercury in general and, and specifically the mercury in childhood vaccines 
causes autism. Now, this is a topic about which I have written extensively uh, and researched it extensively, um, you know, doing literature research, not my area of scientific research. And the bottom line is there is absolutely no link between mercury and autism and or vaccines and autism. The notion was um, very dubious to begin with. Not, it, was, it was not, com- not 100% implausible, but it had a low plausibility. The evidence was either very preliminary or it was, it, was, it was very shoddy. And over the last 20 years, it's been studied extensively and, and pretty convincingly shown that there, there is no link between mercury and autism or vaccines and autism. Just to get up to date on this story, so in around 2002, uh, a preservative called thimerosal, which does contain ethyl mercury, which is the lesser sort of toxic version of mercury, uh, in, 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 in small amounts that is below toxic levels, that is a, in safe amounts, was in some childhood vaccines. And that was part of the reason for a lot of this you know, grassroots hysteria about you know, mercury and vaccines causing autism. To be on the safe side, thimerosal was removed from all childhood vaccines. And uh, that was done uh, by, the, by 2002. There was still some... Um, vaccines still on shelves that contain thimerosal. They weren't recalled, just that no new vaccines with thimerosal were made. But surveys showed that 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 represented a very small amount of stocks that were in place. So there was maybe just a small amount of of thimerosal still getting out there. So basically now it's five years later. And at the time, the believers in mercury uh, causing autism, or the the, which are very intimately tied with the anti-vaccination crowd, they were saying that we're going to see a significant drop in the autism numbers after we remove thimerosal. And in fact, I interviewed, researching a paper, I interviewed David Kirby, who wrote the book Evidence of Harm, about you know, promoting the notion of, of thimerosal causing autism. And I asked him, uh, what's going to happen now that thimerosal is out of vaccines? And you know, we both agreed that this would be the ultimate test of this hypothesis. And, you know, if, if autism rates plummeted back down to pre, uh, like 1995 levels before the, the childhood vaccine schedule had increased, that would have been a pretty compelling argument in favor of, of a causation. And if it didn't, that pretty much would have been the final nail in the coffin. Well, it's five years later and the, uh, the rate of autism diagnoses continues to rise. It's actually not, probably not a true increase in incidence. It's probably just an artifact of the definition and surveillance. So it's not even really a true epidemic. So it's kind of a side issue, but it's, it's not, probably not really a true epidemic. And in any case, now Kirby and the other, you know, um, anti-vaccine people are backpedaling on that that claim. So they're not holding to the agreement as to what the evidence would mean and how to interpret it, which is, is a, again, a, a huge red flag for intellectual dishonesty. Moving goalposts. Yeah, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, autism rates will drop. They didn't. Oh, well, let me invent other reasons why it didn't. So now, now, they're, now they're furiously engaging in post hoc rationalization. Like Kirby said on a, in, a, in a debate that, well, the, there's a crematoriums release mercury into the atmosphere and there's increased in cremation. So that's exactly compensating for the drop in, you know, va- in thimerosal from vaccines. It's that's lame. utter nonsense. I mean, it's, yeah, it's lame. <laughs> it really is incredible. But that's where they are now. It's no, so it's now they're backing off thimerosal because that, that ship has sailed. Just anything to keep their pseudoscience alive, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's post hoc. So it's, it's called a post hoc rationalization. You're just inventing a reason after the fact to explain whatever it is, the lack of evidence or the lack of a correlation. Post hoc rationalization or bullshit. Right, yeah, right. Or fake, and more yeah. colloquial parlance. Yes. But n- now this, this is coming up again now because uh, about 4,800 families have sued uh, the federal government of the United States for compensation from a special fund. There is a fund that's set aside to compensate people who are genuinely harmed by vaccines. Vaccines aren't risk-free. They're a public health measure. So the, the notion is it's only fair that if we you know, really encourage people to take vaccines because they benefit other people, not just themselves, we'll, for those people who do get the bad reaction or whatever, we'll have a compensation fund. But now people are claiming basically compensation for their child's autism, claiming that it was caused by vaccines or thimerosal. And, and 4,800 families have filed the claim. The, the first nine cases are now going before a special hearing that was established to, you know, to, to review this. And that's going to be happening all all June. We'll probably get a decision by the end of June. Uh, and it brings up the uh, another issue, which is the role of science in the courtroom. Which, unfortunately, in this country, it, it's possible for for juries or for judges to rule against the scientific evidence based upon no, legal Simpson. grounds. <coughs> yeah, well, I mean, O.J. Simpson was a different issue. That was entirely. This is this is the this is. Um, Basically, the threshold for ruling in, based upon an apparent correlation is that it needs to be – the probability needs to be, quote-unquote, 50% and a feather. So anything more than 50%, you could say that's enough that there may have been harm and we're going to compensate people for that harm. Even though – although I don't think it's 50% and a feather, I think it's – Less than two percent. It's very that there's any correlation. I think it's been reduced down to single digits or and, and very very low. Uh, but still, they they could make a legal case, even though there isn't a scientific case to make. And at this point, we're basically dependent upon the judges to like not be overly swayed by the sob stories to really understand and listen to the scientific evidence. Um, kind of in the same way that we were dependent upon Judge Jones in the Dover Intelligent Design trial you know, to, to understand the scientific evidence and make the right decision. So it still may go okay, but it really, it's, it's hard to say at this point. It really can go either way. Now, if the judges rule that um, these families should be compensated for their child's autism, that will open the floodgates. Again, there's 4,800 families lined up behind them. And uh, the speculation is that this could destroy the the vaccine industry. You know, who's going to want to? What pharmaceutical company is going to want to produce vaccines when you could be held to, to liability even in the absence of scientific evidence? I mean, it basically makes it impossible to uh, to sell vaccines. Steve, does this is this why that we've the we've run into flu vaccination shortages in past years, in recent years? That's part of it. That, that is part of it. Yes. This sort of reluctance for for companies to to produce vaccines because it's, it's high risk. So, so I would have thought that the the problem with flu vaccines is that they're basically useless because the flu uh, adapts so quickly. They're not useless. That limits their utility. It means maybe you're capturing fifty to sixty percent of the of the of the viruses. You're basically treating last year's flu. With the well, vaccine, yeah, I mean, but it's not at zero. I'm, I'm saying useless, but in a in a practical sense, 
you know, for anybody but the elderly or... Yeah. Well, let's hope in these first nine cases for the wisdom of Dover. Yes. That's what we have to hope for. One last news item. This one is uh, a bit of a sad news item. Television's Mr. Wizard, Don Herbert, has died at the age of 89. Very sad. I loved Mr. Wizard when I was He was great. He really was. Uh, he died of bone cancer, apparently, or complications from bone cancer. But he he is, you know, Mr. Wizard was one of the original, really the original science popularizer in the mass media. I've heard from so many scientists who say that he's the guy that got them interested in science. Yeah. He's the reason why we have scientists out there. I think he had a huge science. impact. I think, I think he touched a lot of different people and he, he sparked a generation of, of people that are interested in science. Absolutely. I mean, uh, 1951 to 64, that, I mean, that's going back. The Skeptic's Guide is very much a continuation of the tradition of Mr. Wizard. I mean, it's you know, trying to package science in a way that is accessible and interesting to a mass audience uh, and get people interested in what's really cool about science. And, and I'm sure you guys have seen some of the shows. I mean, I, I haven't seen... All of them, obviously, of but I have seen, seen quite a few of them. They, they actually are really good. I mean, this, the science teaching that is taking place in, in his shows is excellent quality and, and holds up. Of course, you know, the, the, the production and the style is, of course, very dated and, and, and kind of fun, actually, you know, in a campy way. But Well, there wasn't just the show from the 50s, you know. There was a, he, yeah, was he did more in the 80s, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure little, the exact little bit of a yeah you're right Rebecca he did he had like a continuation of the show as an older person yeah but, those are the ones that they showed us as kids well anyway, so let's dedicate this episode of the podcast to Mr. Wizard the original science popularizer 99 number 99 goes to Mr. Wizard here's to you Mr. Wizard thank you very much here's a tip to tip of your pointy hat to you I've poured some of my 40 on the floor he would have been very cool on your calendar though yeah, yeah, I would have uh, I would have liked that. He's a sexy man for 89. So we have an interview coming up in just a bit with Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, but first... Oh, I can't wait for that. Let's do a few of your emails. Uh, the first email comes from Matt Dick, and he writes, I would love for Skeptic's Guide to cover rods, in quote, quotes, some people believe they are a flying creature as yet unknown <laughs> to most of science. A Los Angeles news program can be viewed here. He gives a link, of course, which we'll reproduce. Of course, the immediate idea is that these are artifacts of video cameras. I was frustrated that the crew didn't just film the phenomenon with two cameras and sync the footage. From that, you could pretty quickly determine if the event was in the camera or in the world. If it's in the world, you could determine size and speed from triangulating the two signals if you just recorded how far the cameras were from each other. It doesn't take much to really narrow down this kind of thing, and it's frustrating to see people miss easy opportunities. Anyway, if you guys could discuss it, it would be a fun topic. As always, love the podcast. Well, thanks, I'm not, Matt. I'm not sure if we talked about it before, but no, I this know is... I blogged about rods uh, months, well, I guess it was like a year ago when they first were really hitting the big time on the internet. That's a There's a whole wacky kind of cult around them. Yeah, yeah. but Rebecca, yeah. were they ghost rods or were they, were they these flying rods that, that these flying videos rods. are showing? But yeah, they, I hadn't they, I hadn't seen them before. These 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 were new to me anyway. But that's because uh, you don't read my blog, and well, don't think that I didn't notice that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Bob, Not Bob's right. There is a, there is a, a phenomenon called rods, which uh, ghost hunters use, and that's just streaks of light on on photographs. This is more yeah, this is a of a video phenomenon where yeah. on video 
what they, they capture what looks like these from several inch, inches to maybe a foot or so long, you know, rod-shaped image with like blurry, you know, fluttering motion along the sides as if it were like a, a flying creature shaped like a pencil with long thin wings on either side uh, running running along the bat, running along the body. If you ever see something silvery kind of flicker off to the side of your vision and you look and it's gone, that was probably a flying rod. There you go. Right. Uh-huh. Now the, the the claims made for them are as as Rebecca says, they're they're wacky. They're it's like a it's, a, it's a little cult, if you will, or it's just part of woven into the fabric of ufology of of belief in all things weird. We've been looking at a lot of sites that are promoting the notion of rods, and it's uh, people write some really funny wacky stuff. But the the bottom line is that no no creature has ever been captured that is a rod. You know, so the, these alleged creatures have never been captured. Um, there is no like photograph of one not flying through the air. Right, they don't die and fall on the ground. Apparently, yeah, no corpses have ever been found. Which, of course, and then you read the reasons why no corpses have ever been found. Well, maybe they disintegrate before they hit the ground. Explaining an unknown wow. with an unknown. Yeah, there we it go. Could be. You think these, there's any chance these are Bigfoot craft? Well, some people think that they are uh, aliens. Others that they are merely unusual creatures. But the truth, while interesting, is more mundane and more plausible. In fact, these are just insects. <laughs> and the, the, uh, what is being seen on the video is a time-lapse blur of a winged insect flying through the visual frame. Because the, the video is not fast enough, you know, to to capture them in stop motion. So you see like about a, a whatever a one or or so second blur of the insect on on the image. And in fact this this has been reproduced. This is not theoretical. People have taken video of insects. Like here's the insect on the tree, on the branch, and here it is flying away and the image that it produces is identical. It is exactly what is being presented as these quote-unquote rods. So it's really QED. These is this is the the blur motion. And if you you know just imagine like you know, like a moth or a butterfly or, or a dragonfly or something flapping its wings up and down and the the path that would follow over a, a second or two of time lapse that's exactly the kind of image that's that is being presented as these rods and of course the rod itself is just the elongation of the insect as it's time lapsed over a second that's it it's pretty it's a photographic yeah. or video artifact like most of these things when things only appear on film whether it's video or still they don't appear outside it's a purely film phenomenon not doesn't does not exist outside of the pictures or video of them then it's probably not real this is a little different though it's this isn't a normal photographic artifact i, I mean i like matt's idea of using two cameras uh, cuz that would indeed pick out a lot of the artifacts that that that, you know that that cameras pick up like ghost globules and uh, and cords and things, but actually, if you had two cameras on one of these insects or one of these things, you both cameras would pick it up, and you might be able to determine the distance and speed, but it wouldn't. They'd still both be there. But uh, this is just uh, one of those things that's that's a real it's a real thing. It's it's really something outside the camera. It's just an artifact. Of not the not the processing of the film, but actually the, the film speed itself. You think the people who are filming these things don't know they're insects? Yeah, they. Some I think some of them do not know. I think they're just they don't know how to think scientifically. Yeah, it's the same as when they photograph dust mites and call them orbs. Right. They want right. to believe, so they do. 
Sure, certainly there's a desire to believe, but also you just read the way they're reasoning and you realize they don't have the slightest clue about how to think scientifically. (laughs) Like saying things like, there's no bodies, maybe they disintegrate before they hit the ground. (laughs) That's evidence that they're aliens. (laughs) No, it's not. They're evidence that they don't exist. They, so they don't understand – they're not going through a process. Also, they, 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 they skip the most basic process of science, which is if you have a hypothesis, think of a way to test it and then test it. And then that's what none of them do. What would test it? What would distinguish between a blurred insect and a new type of creature? Well, how about finding the new type of creature? Something. Give me some kind of tangible physical evidence that it exists. A, a photograph of one not moving. A corpse. Put up nets catch them. In fact, that was done in a laboratory where on the, mo- the, the laboratory monitor, a science lab, and there, they had video monitoring overnight, and then when they were reviewing the video, they saw what appeared, what looked like what was being presented as rods, so they set up nets. And guess what? They caught insects in the nets, <laughs> you know, making the blurry rod-like images. Wait a minute, so, they, so the rods turned into insects? They're, <gasps> yes, they're transmutating. Oh. Another proof that they're aliens. Another wonderful phenomenon that we can't explain. That's then. That's actually Evan. That is not any different than the way they're rationalizing this thing. Oh, they transform themselves into insects when they get captured, and that's why we can't find big feet either because they're the size of insects. <laughs> the next email comes from Frank Auer from the USA, and he writes. I was watching a show on the Science Channel on cable, and they seemed to give some support to John Hutchinson and Zero Point Energy, Jim Ventura and Lifter Research and Anti-Gravity, Joseph Newman's Energy Machine, Thomas Towson Brown and Anti-Gravity. Uh, surprised they were taken quite seriously on a Science Channel. I, I don't know much about them. Any science behind their claims? Thanks, Frank. Uh, the short answer is no. There isn't a lick of science behind any of them. It's all nonsense. But I'm sure Bob is now going to tell us in excruciating detail exactly why <laughs> it's nonsense. Uh, yeah, just you know, no evidence. That's about it. <laughs> you can wow. Very good, Bob. Howdy, Bob. <laughs> no, all right. Let me get... Nice work, that, was, that was almost a Perry-esque <laughs> response. <laughs> we get more of a Bob response. Zero-point energy comes up every now and then. I like to... Give a little primer on that. I, I find it very interesting. Uh, Perry, just plug your ears for like two minutes and you'll be okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Zero-point energy in the context of these free energy guys, in, in the context of these free energy claims, it's vacuum energy, what they call vacuum energy. This, this might seem like an oxymoron. How could energy be associated with a vacuum, which is the epitome of nothingness? In, in fact, scientists have known for years that vacuum energy, that a vacuum is not just empty space. Particles and antiparticles are constantly being created and mutually annihilating each other. This stems, this stems from one of my favorite principles, the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle or the Indeterminacy Principle, which basically says – Perry, you're familiar with this. This basically says that you cannot know with arbitrary accuracy certain pairs of variables dealing with energy and space-time. The classic- I watch Star Trek. Good, boy. The classic examples are position and momentum of a particle. The more you measure one, the less, the less accurately you can measure the other. And this is not based on a limitation of technology or how smart we are. It's just a fundamental limit on what can be determined in principle about nature. Yeah, which is interesting because even though I understand why that has to be true and I understand what, right. what the principle is, it is totally counterintuitive. And I, I can't no. understand why nature is constructed in such a way that that has to be the case, you know? You re- you found that counterintuitive? 
Hmm. Yeah, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle? Not not really. But how does this tie back to zero-point energy? Okay, uh, let me get back to that. So this... Um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle applies to the fields that permeate a vacuum. If these fields are zero and the rate of change are, would also be zero, so then you, would, then you would know precisely both of these conjugate variables, they call them, and that would violate the uncertainty principle. So therefore, there's a certain amount of minimum energy that, that's always there. Now, this zero-point energy, there's no doubt, nobody really doubts that, that this stuff exists. There's, there's lots of different lines of evidence showing that it ex- exists. One is called the Lamb shift, which is a, a, a frequency shift in light as it's emitted by atoms. And another is the Casimir effect. You might have heard of the Casimir effect. Now, imagine two parallel metal plates that are extremely close together, but they're not touching. If you do this experiment properly, the metal plates are pushed together. Now, this is explained by the, by the Casimir effect, which is an attraction due to these quantum fluctuations. And when you've got a small gap between these two plates, only very small fluctuations can fit in between the plates. The bigger fluctuations, the, the greater amount of zero-point energy is outside the plates. So as I said, there's no doubt that this energy exists, but just because it exists doesn't mean that, that it has useful energy that we could extract. Yeah, so the question is, how much energy is there, and, and can we tap into it? Right. And, and are these people, in fact, tapping into zero-point energy? Right. A lot of the, the uh, free energy proponents claim that zero-point energy is a near-infinite source of energy. Now, physicists aren't quite sure exactly how much zero-point energy there is out there, uh, but many of them, many of these free energy guys make, the, make claims such as the energy in a cup of coffee could boil the Earth's oceans if we could just knew how to extract it. Now, if you look yeah. at some of the experiments that have been done, physicist Steve Lamoureux, physicist at uh, Los Alamos, he's done experiments with the Casimir effect, and he was only able to extract 10 to the minus 15 joules uh, from that process. It's been estimated that the Casimir plates would need to be kilometers long just to generate a kilogram of force. So that doesn't bode well for a a near infinite energy source out there. And the final argument that the vacuum energy out there is minimal is is purely observational. If the energy of the vacuum was as gargantuan as a lot of these people claim, the gravitational force from that huge amount of energy would bend space to such a degree that you wouldn't be able to see a straight line for more than a few kilometers. So it doesn't look good. Is this what uh, Dennis Lee advocates? Basically, I mean, Dennis Lee, I don't know how technical he gets, but most of the promoters of free energy or what we call the over-unity machines, machines that produce more energy than they consume, uh, usually make hand-waving reference to zero-point energy. So that's Dennis Lee's in that camp, but I'm not sure how much he talks about zero-point. Now, just to get to the, some of these people that, the, that Frank specifically asked us about, the first one was John Hutchinson, who is specifically, he's very much like, uh, like Dennis Lee. He, he claims that he has machines that could tap into zero-point energy and, and, pro- and produce limitless, uh, limitless energy. But he, he, the guy's a crank, basically. I mean, if you is he also seeking funding like Dennis Lee is? I went. Yes. To, I went to his website. He's okay. offering tons of videos for for tons of money. It's it's really um, it's really ridiculous. Yeah, if you, you actually most of his claims, you have to like pay money for videos and stuff. Right. To, uh, okay. This guy's really this guy's really a Neil Adams wannabe. I've got a couple quotes here that really uh, made me laugh. He said, "I attribute my discoveries due to a lack of conventional science education." Yes. <laughs> uh, if there's anything worse than being Neil Adams, it's being a Neil Adams wannabe. <laughs> That's the same thing we attribute his discoveries to, his lack of science education. And right. he said similar stuff like, um, 
Uh, my lack of doing and recording experiments in the proper way has frustrated scientists. I mean, why would they get frustrated just because you're not doing experiments right? And then he said, I believe that communication you know, between himself and scientists will occur naturally when a bond of intuition takes place between myself and a, and a scientist pursuing my findings. So that's all that's missing. You know, you just, once you have that bond of intuition, then, you know, then, then of course, they'll, they'll see the light. And More gobbledygook. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> Intuition, right. And never mind the fact that he can't even replicate his own experiments. They only seem to work when he's filming them alone. Uh, he can't reproduce them in front of people. Uh, he can't reproduce them for other people's cameras. No one else has been able to follow his instructions and reproduce his experiments. So that, he fails a real basic, basic uh, quality control mechanism in science. And again, the, really the only plausible explanation is that his ideas are nonsense, and they're not true. And the same is true basically with, with all the other guys on this list. They have their own flavor of things, Jim Ventura, you know, Joseph Newman, Thomas Brown. They're all, they're all Neil Adams-esque. They're all Dennis Lee <laughs> types who are asking for a lot of money, who are making a lot of claims, who have a million and one excuses why their experiments never work. This guy, Thomas Brown, has been building anti-gravity machines for 50 years, and yet he's never been able to actually show one flying or demonstrating anti-gravity, but they're just on the verge, just on the verge. As soon as all of this you know, suppression by the evil government and all this negativity from other scientists lifts, they'll be able to prove to the world that, that all of their ideas are correct. Well, let's go on to our interview with Phil Plate. We are joined now by Phil Plate, the bad astronomer. Phil, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Hey, SGUers, or is it SGTTUers? SGU is the official. The, uh, okay. Hey, thanks for having me back. So this is your, I believe, this is your third time on our show, which convinces me that you don't actually listen to the podcast. Else you wouldn't <laughs> invite me back. But I think that officially makes you a regular guest on the Skeptics Guide. Wow. Now we that's. Put- uh, that's an honor. It's quite, yeah, probably and you can hear the sincerity. You've had probably more appearances on the podcast than anybody else, right, Steve? Is anybody else a three-peater? No, I think we've had a number of two, but no, no people on. You're the first person to be on for the third time, I believe. Phil, this hasn't aired yet. <laughs> Phil's a three, a three-peater. That's very impressive, Phil. I didn't know I had it in me, actually. <laughs> I didn't know you had him on you. <laughs> so, Phil, you've had a bit of a career change recently. Why don't you tell us about that? That's a great it's question. true. I went to a cosmetology college, and now I'm a beautician. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, I'm jobless. I, uh, I decided to quit my job and move east. East? East, yes, from California to Colorado. I was at Sonoma State University in Northern California doing educational work based on a bunch of NASA satellites. And that was a pretty cool job, and it was a lot of fun. It had its ups and downs. Um, But I want to do more. I want to do more writing. I want to do more media stuff. And I've been trying to to get a second book contract for a long time. My my first book is still out there, Bad Astronomy, and it's uh, I just got actually got my royalty statements, and it's uh, it's not as, uh, as as maybe strong as it used to be. But it's been out there for five years, so yeah, it's time. It, it's been time to write a second book for a long time. I've been pitching it for years, nobody bit, and then finally a little bit of a shake up, and I was able to get a publisher to buy my idea. Um, and then they said, we're going to want this by October. And I thought, 
I can't write a book by October and have a full-time job. And they said, well then, don't you have a decision to make? Yeah. But, yeah. So, so you that, made it. It, was, it was not an easy decision, but it was an inevitable one. I, so I quit my job, and uh, that was interesting, watching that paycheck dwindle to zero and then buy a new house. This is, yeah, it's really smart to move and buy a new house when you don't have a salary anymore. Um, <laughs> But as long as the book comes out when they say it will come out, uh, we won't have to resort to eating belly button lint and stuff we find under the sofa cushion. So it should be okay. <laughs> Not that that means you people shouldn't be buying the book when it comes out. So what's the book about? Oh, about 12 chapters. Hey, thank you very much. I'm here every Tuesday and Thursday. And, and that's the quality entertainment. We've brought you three times. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called Death from the Skies, and it's about many different ways that astronomical events can, if not wipe out life on Earth, at least give us a really sucky day. I wasn't sure how it was going to be to write it, uh, because it's it's depressing. <laughs> a lot of these things, it's like, oh, I've whacked us with an asteroid. Oh, a supernova's blown up next to us. Oh, it's a collapse of the quantum vacuum. And uh, every one of these is like, uh, and so uh, I'm trying to make it entertaining um it's it's hard enough getting the facts in straight you know you write eight thousand words of a chapter and then it's like oh yeah now i have to add the funny and so i have to go back and jokes and and make it i I really don't want to scare the crap out of my readers i I want it to be realistic you're finding it difficult to light to lighten up the apocalypse (laughs) pretty much you'd think it would be easy it's like, oh, all those people I don't like are going to get vaporized. Excellent. Oh, but no more chocolate chip cookies in my life. Oh, bummer. So did you write it out as if it was you were telling a story explaining the event blow by blow? In fact, the uh, structure I'm using for the book is that each chapter starts with a little story about a page, page and a half, just discussing the events as if they're really happening. And then the rest of the chapter is, is you know, dreary scientific blather about what just happened. Oh, way to sell it. Dreary scientific blather, huh? <laughs> well, no, you know, my I've dreary never... scientific blather is so much better Gosh, than everyone else's. Exactly. I've never heard you write anything that could be described as dreary. Phil, which, uh, which one is most likely to happen? Is the asteroid the most likely disaster? or um, It's the most likely for sure in, in that it's inevitable. And, and of everything I could think of, and it, God, I made a long list of things, and you know, going from the, the, the percentage of this happening is 100 uh, down to really ridiculous, uh, wacky, uh, uh, fringe scientific ideas that, you know, one in a gazillion chance of happening. And the funny thing about asteroid impacts is that if we do nothing, there is a 100% chance that this will happen given enough time. Now, what kind of time frame are we talking about? Well, the Earth is hit by 20 to 40 tons of meteoric material every day. So, you know, that any given second, there's something burning up in our atmosphere. But the bigger stuff, statistically speaking, there's more of an interval between them. Uh, and so you get a Tunguska-like event, this, this 100-meter-wide chunk of rock or something that blew up over the Siberian desert in 1908. That happens about every 100 years. So if you're living in Russia right now, you've got a year. Pack your bags. Um, and, I, and, and that's one of the things I want to point out in the book is the difference between a statistical uh, interval and the actual interval. You know, when somebody says, well, it's 100 years between these events. No, it's not. You know, we've... 
over you know 100,000 years, we've had 100 of these events, so they happen on average once every 1,000 years. But in fact, you know, you might have a 10,000-year gap and then two in a row or whatever. And you've got to be careful here about statistics. What really irks me is that you watch these TV shows about the end of the world, and they, they constantly harp on all this destruction and all the stuff that goes on and how, you know, how we're overdue. You know, we're overdue for the Yellowstone supervolcano to blow up, and we're overdue for the, the La Palma volcano to collapse in the, in the Atlantic Ocean. We're not overdue. We're just overdue statistically speaking. It may never happen again. And so we're not overdue for a giant asteroid impact. I want people to understand that, statistically speaking, it's a dead certainty. But in fact, it's the only of all of these things that we can prevent. And if we have enough lead time, if we actually get out there with our telescopes and look for these things, it's 100% preventable, 100%. Do you hold with the big space rock wiping out the dinos? Well, yeah. Something roughly 10 kilometers across smacked into the Earth 63, 65 million years ago. Um, that much is, is, is absolutely certain. The Cretaceous tertiary boundary in the rock is very clear. It, it, it's almost as if written in English, it says, an asteroid hit at this time. Right. Uh, there, there, the, the elements of iridium and, and I think osmium and a few other heavy elements that you do not find in the Earth's crust are, are many times overabundant in this layer. And they're very common in asteroids. So, Nobody doubts an asteroid hit at that time. The question is, did it wipe out the dinosaurs? And I don't think that is as certain. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree with that. My, again, this is not my area of expertise, but my understanding is that uh, the more careful fossil counting and whatnot has pretty much supported the single-stroke theory that the asteroid wiped them out. Um, actually, we interviewed a, a geologist last fall about this this very specific issue, and he said the data is absolutely clear. There is a sharp line uh, with the impact, and dinosaurs up to that point, and no dinosaurs afterward. I'm willing to accept that, of course. That's not my my expertise yeah. either. I've just seen the shows on Discovery where they talk about the existence of some types of plants and some types of bacteria after the asteroid impact that you wouldn't expect to see there um, if it had wiped out. If the damage had been as serious. Yeah, I've I've seen those shows too, and my impression is they're out of date. They were out of date by the time they got on TV because the scientists I was talking to had had newer data which invalidated the points. That well, made. I'll tell you, I watch a lot of astronomy programs on TV, mm-hmm. and I have yet to see one where I didn't just want to throw something at the television. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just recently saw one about the end of the Earth, and it was it was full of astronomical errors. And, and graphics which were very misleading and, and, and simple. You know, they were looking to, to, to weave together a narrative after interviewing some astronomers. And the narrative they wove together made it seem like that something that has, that has been known for a long time was actually discovered after somebody's thought about this other issue. It was just, it was all a mess. Yeah. And I yeah. thought, oh my God, I wish they had talked to me first before putting this stuff on the air because it was garbage. Not that it would have mattered because they, you know, sometimes they have their timeline and they just are quote mining, you know. That's right. They don't, they don't really let the scientists write the piece. Um, and oddly enough, my phone is the hook from people from, <laughs> yeah. you know, production companies asking me to vet their scripts. So We feel the same way, Phil. We feel the same way (laughs) what happened recently with the um the new scientist article that came out about water on mars didn't you address this in your blog phil yeah example of poor scientific journalism this this was a a a funny story 
because there were a series of mistakes that had to be made. One is that there is a guy who does research on Mars, and he has a tendency to make claims which are maybe a little bit on the fringe. And if you notice the especially careful way that I am phrasing this, you can probably read into this what I'm really thinking about some of his claims. What, did he say, like he invented the question mark or something? What's going on? Any scientist will make a lot of claims which don't pan out. That's fine. But, you know, when you're making outrageous claims and they don't pan out, at some point you have to say, you know, maybe it's me. But this guy, is, he has a history of doing this sort of thing. And he, he comes out, he examines a picture coming from one of the Mars rovers as it was sitting in a crater. And he said, this picture shows what looks like puddles of water on Mars. Now, that's interesting. You can look at pictures and interpret them in a lot of different ways. Uh, it doesn't, when I looked at the picture carefully, I can see patterns and ripples in it, which makes it look to me like it's very fine powder and not water. But I'm not an expert, so I, you know, I, I didn't have any real comment on this. But it's sort of a, a big claim. You know, we, we know there was water on Mars in the past. There's clear evidence of, of large bodies of water. There's evidence of, of massive floods on Mars. There's evidence that is extremely interesting of current subsurface water on Mars that may be frozen and, uh, and, and leaks out a little bit. There's the, that, that came out last year where they showed on the sides of craters it looks like there's been recent flow. Mars has very little atmosphere, and even in the temperatures Mars is at, water will very quickly boil away. So it doesn't last long. And so we do have a lot of evidence of, of, of water on Mars. That's fine. But not ponding water, not extant current standing puddles of water. So this is a huge claim. Interestingly, it was made at a conference. It was not submitted to any number of planetary journals. It was submitted to an engineering journal, the IEEE journal, which is not you know, what you would expect a planetary scientist to do. They would submit it to Icarus or one of these other planetary journals. So already the, 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 the pedigree of this is a little iffy. New Scientist, which is um, uh, a pretty good science magazine. I like reading it. Um, they have a lot of good public level science stuff in it. The, the magazine itself tends to skirt on the edge of science, which is good. I like that um, because they bring stuff out that other people wouldn't necessarily do and so the public gets to see it and they're usually very careful about this sort of thing and they say, you know, this is fringe, this is you know, the evidence is iffy. They're good about that. But every now and again, you know, when you walk that close to the line, there are times you, you walk too far over it. And so what happened was a guy wrote an article about this. They, they put up a false color picture of Mars where the water is colored, I should say the water in quotes, is colored blue, bright blue. The, the headline said something like, researchers find puddles on Mars, puddles in quotation marks, but come on, right? And then it says, you know, he's claiming he found puddling water on Mars. Now, as a journalist... You know, what you do is you find other people to comment on this, and they got one guy to say, well, probably not because water should boil away. And then they go back to the original researcher, and he says, no, if it's, if it's briny enough, if it's salty enough, it won't. And so this article really makes it seem like this guy has found puddles on Mars, right? Well, then you go to Unmanned Spaceflight, this forum, these people who, who talk about this, and there are a lot of scientists and people who know a lot about what's going on. And somebody said, well, you know, if this is 
ponding on Mars, if it's puddled water, wouldn't you expect that it would be on a flat surface? You know, when you go outside and you see puddles, it's always on a flat surface. It turns out that this picture was a small part of a much larger picture. When you look at the much larger picture, you realize you are looking at a cliff. You know, not just a slope, <laughs> but a cliff. And it's, it's not vertical, but it is, it's called Burns Cliff, and it's actually an extremely steep slope. And you look at that and you go, oh, well, obviously this isn't water. If it is, then, um, you know, there's going to be water skiing on Mars if water can actually puddle in a, at a slant. Yeah, I mean, that's even more amazing. Not only did he discover water, but he discovered water that defies gravity. So it's, well, it's Martian gravity. gravity. It's lower gravity. So From that evidence, the guy's cracked. Where's the disconnect? Well, he's certainly wrong. And, and to make such a fundamental error as to, is for a planetary scientist to not say, maybe I should look at the bigger picture here and see you know, what the location is. He even said in the article, in the New Scientist article, it says that the edges of these puddles are horizontal, which is, looks like it in the picture, in the small picture, but... They never looked to see where the rover was pointed, what the angle the camera was tilted at. All this information, which is is in the uh, in the telemetry of the rover, you can get this information. It's like taking a picture of something in the sky and saying, this is an alien flying saucer. And then somebody looks at it and says, you know, yeah, it's an alien flying saucer that says United Airlines on the side of it. <laughs> it just He didn't do even the most basic... Uh, research that you should do when you're taking a picture and examining it. And then new scientists ran with it and really only got a really perfunctory critique of it from a scientist. If they'd gone to almost anybody else, they would have said, look, this is garbage. This is on a slope. And they didn't. And then when they retracted the article, which, you know, good for them, they retracted the article and said, no, in the bigger picture, it didn't work. And the, and the researcher actually said, I made a mistake, which is good. But even in the bigger picture, they said, we tried to contact people, but they didn't get back to us quickly enough. And it's like, well, the guy announced this at a conference in March, and this was on the web. It wasn't even in their print magazine. What's the hurry? Keep making phone calls. Make sure you get this right. So they screwed up. And this kind of thing worries me because if that had been something bigger, a bigger claim, or if it had leaked out into, into the web or something like that, then real, real scientists and real journalists would have a hell of a time keeping this thing from, from, from being another, yet another NASA cover-up. Right, then it becomes a big conspiracy. Right? Exactly. And, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really tough to unscramble an egg when something like that comes out. Hey, Phil, have you heard about the paper coming out called uh, The Return of the Static Universe and the End of Cosmology? By, uh, yes, I've heard of it. I have not read the actual paper yet. There was an article in the New York Times, which I read, and a press release about it. I, I think there was a press release about it that I read as well. It's an interesting idea. Well, can you just sum it up real quick and then give us your comments on that? Yeah, there are two. Sum it up real quick. Yeah, I just took like, what, 20 minutes to talk about puddles on Mars that don't exist. Um, The idea is that um, the universe is expanding. And this is fairly solid. We know this pretty well. We've known it for about 100 years. What has recently been discovered is that this expansion is accelerating. This, this information is only about 10 years old. Most astronomers now agree that this expansion of the universe is getting faster every day. What this means is that at some point in the future, objects are going to be moving away from us so quickly that we will no longer see them. Right now, when you look out in the universe, there is a certain distance that you can see, and you cannot see any farther. And the farther away you look, the faster things are moving away from you. That is, that is sort of a, a situation you get when you have a uniformly expanding object. Farther away things are moving faster. At some point, they're moving so quickly 
that they're basically redshifted to infinity. The, all of the information is just lost, is how you can think of that. But if the expansion is accelerating, that distance is actually getting closer to us. As objects recede from us faster, objects that are only receding from us right now at a certain speed, sometime in the future will be receding from us fast enough that we don't see anything from them anymore. And so what you can think of is it's, it's like looking over the horizon. You can only look as far as the horizon. And that horizon is getting closer and closer to us, and things are falling past it. And so right now, there is some quasar that is you know 10 billion light years away or something like that, and we can see it. But in another few billion years, it will have accelerated to the point where we will not see it anymore. And so that, that line in the sky, it's actually an area in the sky, it's getting closer and closer. And eventually, it'll be so close that it's going to basically just encompass the nearby galaxies. We will only be able to see things like the Andromeda galaxy and, and some of these other nearby galaxies, although actually, by then, the Andromeda galaxy and our own Milky Way will have merged into one giant galaxy. But all these other nearby galaxies, we'll see them, but there won't be anything past them. And so, an astronomer looking out at the universe with a telescope would have a lot less information to go on than we do right now. In a way, we live in a special time. We can see distant objects. We can see the leftover radiation from the Big Bang, this microwave background all over the sky that basically tells us what the history of the universe is. But billions of years from now, that will have, that will have faded away. And the knowledge you can get by observing the skies will be severely limited. This is Lawrence Krauss wrote this, right? And right. He put the time frame at a 10 billion years before this, this happened. That's right, and that shocked me. That was uh, a much, much sooner deadline than I was expecting. Phil, to change, change pace a little bit, one of the things you do, one of the fun things you do on your, on your website, Bad Astronomy, is uh, critique this, the astronomy accuracy in movies. And I noticed that you had a, have done that to a preview for an upcoming movie, a remake of the invasion of the body snatchers, but the, the preview has a little sequence at the beginning of it, which you've already picked apart. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, this is a movie crying out to be made into a sequel. Oh, wait! Right. <laughs> it already has been twice. Yeah, twice! Right. This is the third sequel! It was done in 78, I think, with Donald Sutherland and Leonard Nimoy. Yep. And right. um, it was it's a pretty decent sequel. If you can get past the fact that it was made in the 70s and Donald Sutherland has curly hair and Leonard Nimoy's wearing a horrifying 70s outfits. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a really grim movie. The trailer's on YouTube. You can, you can find it on my blog. If you go to my blog and search for, I don't know, Nicole Kidman, you'll find it. And it opens with the space shuttle heading towards the Earth. And um, you see the Earth in the background. The shuttle's headed right at it like an airplane with its rockets thrusting. And there are actually a lot of mistakes in this. And one is that... Uh, the implied distance of the shuttle to the Earth is way too big. The shuttle doesn't get more than about three or 400 miles from the Earth. It just does not have the fuel to get up any higher. And so this looked like it was thousands of miles away. So that's wrong right away. Okay, that's a nitpick. Even I'll admit that. It, it's, it was firing its main thrusters. Well, those main thrusters don't fire without the external tank hooked up to the, uh, to the engine. It actually doesn't, to the, to the uh, external tank, that big orange tank. Once that's gone, it really can only, it only uses its, it, the OMS, the Orbital Maneuvering System, which is a different system, I think. I'm not positive about this, I think that's right. Then they show the shuttle heading towards the Earth, and if it's coming towards the Earth, 
is actually doing it uh, ass backwards. You actually take the engines and fire them into the direction of flight because that slows the orbiter so that it can descend into uh, the Earth's atmosphere. And so those were all just kind of dumb mistakes. And that's, you know, movies do that kind of thing. But then what they show, and I didn't mention this in the blog, but they show the, the shuttle breaking up and disintegrating. And then they show a bunch of people on the ground, you know, with the parts lying around, and you see these people with southern accents saying, oh, we're not supposed to pick this stuff up because it's contaminated. And this all really harkens back to Columbia disintegration over Texas and Louisiana. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, I don't know if it's too soon. I, you know, it's, it's not so much that. It's just, I don't know. I don't know if you, if you really want to be making a movie about and, and talking about that kind of stuff. Although, you know, they were making World Trade Center movies within an hour after that stuff happened. So yeah. It's pretty tasteless. Uh, so thanks for being our first regular guest, for coming on, uh, for allowing us to lure you. Well, I'll continue to eat my bran and raisins and put on pump. Thank you. Thank oh. you. Yeah, you got that? Excellent. You, hey. We love you, Phil. Thanks, man. All right, Phil. Phil, good luck with your book. Good luck with your new career. We look forward to If I to, believed uh, in luck, I would appreciate that sentiment. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> I am so snarky. I'm oh. trying not to be a, a four-peter here. So. <laughs> well done. No, I, I do appreciate that. Thank you. Take care. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine and one is fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics and the listeners to tell me which one is fake. I'm sure you guys are all ready. See. Number one. A newly published study shows that spontaneously recovered memories of childhood abuse are almost as accurate as continuous memories. So memories that were never forgotten. Item number two, among the many new species recently discovered in the deep Antarctic Ocean is a shrimp species the size of a dolphin. Item number three, physicians report a case of a man who bled green blood during a surgical procedure. Rebecca, go first. So you're saying that recovered memories are just as accurate as ongoing memories. That's what that first bit was about? Spontaneously recovered memories are almost as accurate as continuous memories. That's kind of tricky, but I'm going to say that it is false. I believe that uh, recovered memories tend to not be accurate. So I'll go with that one. Okay. All right. Evan? Wow. Um, Spontaneously recovered memories of childhood abuse are almost as accurate as continuous memories. That's a tough one to swallow which almost makes me not want to pick it. I think it might be the curveball. But I'm going to pick it. I will say that that is fiction. Okay, Jay? God damn. This this is a hard one. I don't know. Now, what's this thing about the shrimp? <laughs> oh, my God. Shrimp gumbo, shrimp. <laughs> they found, so, they found uh, a shrimp the size of a dolphin. Right. Well, I mean, In the deep Antarctic Ocean. Now, that's a jumbo shrimp. <laughs> that's a giant shrimp. Now, how... Uh, how how deep you talking here? Oh, deep, deep. I mean, deep. at least twelve Ooh, for a long. Way down there, huh? There's no depth in the question. Twenty thousand. Twenty thousand at least. Uh, you beat me by. Uh, but you beat me by a microsecond. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to go with the shrimp. I just the size of a dolphin. I think we would have known by that by now. I thought the thing. All right. See, the reason why I say that is I thought that they found out that 
uh, the deeper they go, the smaller the fish are. Isn't that true? I don't know. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll parry you go. Okay, uh, so the third one, yeah, sure. I, I get my blood drawn all the time. I talk to those phlebotomai, and they say people bleed all kinds of weird crap, so that one sounds reasonable. <laughs> uh, the the first one, you know, I, I go with Rebecca there. I mean, this is McMartin all over again. I don't believe in those uh, recovered memories very much. Uh, so, you know, the shrimp. I was in Antarctica, ordered a shrimp cocktail, broke the waiter's back. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that one. I I think I think dolphin sized shrimp is poopoo caca. You think that one's fiction? I do. I do. Okay, Bob. Yeah, I agree with Perry on three. Um, you know the green blood. I mean, the guy could have been a Vulcan. You never know. They're hard to tell from from humans. True. Um, true. Especially if he had a hat on. <laughs> right. Cover his pointy ears. All right. Okay. The new the uh, the study that shows. Child, all right, now, Steve, spontaneously recovered memories of childhood abuse are about as accurate as continuous memories of children or, or adults. Continuous this is memories. memories of childhood abuse. Okay. Well, I think memories are, are fallible overall, no matter where the hell they come from. Uh, normally, I think that I agree with Evan. That's a curveball as well. Normally, I would say, wait a second. So I'm going to say the dolphin-sized shrimp is fiction. So, Evan and Rebecca, you think that the recovered memories is fake, and Bob, Evan, I mean, Bob, Perry, and Jay think that the giant shrimp is fake, which means that you all agree that physicians report a case of a man who bled green blood is true. Now, some of you, you know, Perry and Bob made it sound like you thought that this was not that unusual, but it, it is unusual because physicians reported it as a case, and a case report, by definition, is because it was unusual. I, I didn't but, say it wasn't unusual, Steve. I simply said it was believable. Steve, how green was his blood? I remember reading this, by the way. But how green was yeah, the blood? It was green. It was a. It was a. It was a dark green. Would you say it was like, a forest green? A <laughs> no, teal, what? turquoise, was it a mint, light olive, mint, maybe lime. Dark, Chartreuse? like green to green, and almost like going into black, like Vulcan. The guy's a Vulcan. You know, it was interesting enough that there wasn't an immediate explanation for that. I mean, people do not typically bleed green. And anyway, this one is science and the uh the in the report they speculate as to the likely reason for this. The gentleman uh was taking a drug called sumatriptan. Sumatriptan is a treatment for migraines. It contains sulfur and and in the, if you take enough of it, the sulfur in the uh, sumatriptan can combine with the blood to cause to cause sulfahemoglobinemia. Oh yeah, because it b- binds no with idea. the hemoglobin. And if you get enough of that in your blood, it could make it look green. That sounds bad. So there you go. Uh, and then you know, normally that could happen, but you know the blood cells turn over, so it wouldn't build up. But he must have been taking a lot of it. It can happen to enough of a degree that you actually have to treat it with a blood transfusion. Oof. Okay, so we got that one right. So we got that. So you guys all got that one right. Uh, I didn't sucker anybody with the green Vulcan blood. Now, Bob, Jay, and Perry, oh, God. you think that uh, spontaneously recovered memories of childhood abuse are as accurate as continuous memories. You guys all thought that one was true, and Re- Rebecca and Evan thought that one was fake, Yeah, a- and that one yep. is science. Wow. That one is true. This was a little tricky. The the tricky thing in that one is the spontaneously recovered memories because there was a third category 
of memories recovered in therapy. Spontaneously recovered memories. So this is what, what, the, what the researchers did is they reviewed cases of re- memories of, tra- of traumatic uh, childhood abuse and they compared those who always had, you know, believed that they always had the memories. So they're reporting, yes, I, I, I had this abuse. I, there was never a period of time where I forgot that I had the abuse. These, these are results that are published in the July issue of Psychological Science, by the way. And then they, they, they compared that to people who said that they spontaneously recovered the memories. Just one day, the, the memories were there. You know, they, they came back. And they compared that to the third group of, of people who recovered the memories as part of therapy. And then they, and then they uh, investigated each claim to see if they could corroborate it. Was there a uh, – was it reported shortly after the event? Were, was the – uh, were there others who re- reported abuse by the same person? Were the, was there uh, you know, doctor's visits or physical you know, confirmation? And then they found that for those who spontaneously recovered the memory, it, that was corroborated 37% of the time. For continuous memories, it was 45% of the time. So those are very similar. So it was almost as much. That's not that similar. Come on. Come on. 37, 45, almost Similar-ish. As much. And, and, but what, what do you think? What do you think was the rate for memories recovered in therapy? Seventy-five percent. It, it was zero percent. Oh, zero. <laughs> okay. So it's it does actually confirm the false memory syndrome notion that false memories can be manufactured as part of. Uh, a therapy session, which is designed to elicit, you know, if you if the purpose well, of the I guess therapy I, is to I misunderstood, el- then because that's what I thought it confirmed. Obviously, that's why I said McMartin earlier. Yeah, so you got it right for the wrong reason, right? Uh, okay, <laughs> it's gonna work better. Um, right. right. So if you so in therapy, the, none of the cases were corroborated, so it still supports the notion that therapy can manufacture false memories. But it was interesting, though. It still was interesting that the spontaneously recovered memories were were validated thirty seven percent of the time. That's still a lot higher than I thought it would have been. Uh, and and also for people who had continuous memories, I thought forty five percent was low. You know, so that means that fifty-five percent of the time, people who report that they have c- continuous memories of a childhood, you know, abuse can't be corroborated. Doesn't mean it's false forty fifty-five percent of the time. You know, th- there's a separate question of what what is th- what's the meaning of corroboration. But there's of course there's no other gold standard to compare it to. So corroboration is all we have. But but even you know, if you think that there are you know, a certain number of cases that can't be corroborated, even though they really happened. It's still that's. I thought forty-five percent was very was, was low, but but again, it does. As Bob said, all memories are fallible, you know, regardless of the context. So I guess it's not that surprising. But all things considered, it was a very interesting, uh, a very interesting study. Which means that number two. Uh, among the many new species recently discovered in the deep Antarctic Ocean is a shrimp species the size of a dolphin, that that one is fiction. But, as usual, that is based upon real news item. In fact, they've um, researchers have published findings of um, some investigations they've been doing in the deep Antarctic Ocean, where they have found... Shrimp the size of porpoises. Many new species, <laughs> many new species. Um, they have found 585 new species of crustaceans, like, fr- like shrimp. Hundreds of new worms have been discovered. 
and it's actually the, a, a much a greater variety of life than they expected to find down there because normally we think of there being fewer species in the deep, deep oceans and that more species evolve and exist and live in the shallower parts of the ocean. But So they were surprised by the number of species and, and the diversity down there. Interestingly, they found some species that were identical to species that are found in the Arctic, uh, which means that they fairly recently and probably fairly quickly migrated all the way, like these you know, small, slow-swimming animals all the way from the Antarctic to the Arctic, which is very interesting. But no shrimp the size of dolphins were, were discovered. They did find, however, a carnivorous sponge. Have you guys, anyone hear about that one? I think I remember reading about that, yeah. Carnivorous sponge with, sponge with teeth. SpongeBob on steroids. Now, I did find what is the biggest shrimp, just because I knew that would come up. So what? how big do you guys think is the biggest shrimp ever discovered? Four foot one. <laughs> is that how tall Tom Cruise is? <laughs> the, the largest shrimp I could find documented on the internet is 40 centimeters. So that's pretty big. Nowhere near as big as a dolphin, but it's pretty big. <laughs> 40 centimeters. It's big. So Bob J. Perry, congratulations. Right, Perry, you. you backed into that one, but congratulations. Excuse anyway. me? believe I was quite clear about it, I guess. Thank you. <laughs> but good work. So that brings us to our skeptical puzzle. Evan, can you tell us what last week's puzzle yep. was, please? Here we go. Name the former world leader that used to laugh at UFO believers, but later became a believer himself when he himself witnessed one. And the correct answer is former President Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. Of the USA. Give us the story. What, what? About him before before he actually became president, he in 1969 in October he had a sighting outside of the Georgia State Representative House, I believe it was, and he had no idea what it was—a ball of light changing colors, as he described it, back and forth, blue, then orange, then red, and so forth, and apparently it zipped away. And up to that point, he had said he had said he used to laugh at people who would believe in UFOs. But I guess from that moment on, he himself became a believer in UFOs as perhaps extraterrestrial craft. I don't, I'm not quite sure. Um, but he went even further a few years later to fill out a report for a pro UFO group, in which he uh, officially documented his reported sighting that took place back in 1969. So, uh, so as to get it on record. So there you are. Excellent. Did anyone win? Yes, absolutely. The winner is and was and still is Talus from the message board. T A L U S. He was the first one to guess Jimmy Carter correctly. So congratulations to Talus. Congratulations. Good work. Well done. And Evan, can you read us this week's puzzle? Yes. This week's puzzle is as follows. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Mark Twain, Herbert Hoover, J. Paul Getty, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Rudolph Giuliani. What unskeptical trait do all of these famous people have in common? Good luck, everyone. Very interesting. Good work, Evan. That's interesting. Thank you. And that brings us to the skeptical quote of the week. I happen to have one of those. And that, that quote is as follows. Education has failed in a very serious way to convey the most important lesson science can teach. Skepticism. 
And that was by David Suzuki, 1936 to present, a Canadian environmentalist, scientist, and broadcaster of some note. <laughs> love Excellent that. quote, Perry. Thank you. Thank you. Canadian Suzukis. By the way, where our podcast steps in. That's right. Just a couple of announcements before we go. Again, I just want to remind everybody that the Skeptic's Guide Uncut Number 2 is available from our website. Number one and number two, we're going to try to keep coming out with those every month or so. These are uh, uncut versions of some of our longer interviews. Uh, We have a lot of extra material that doesn't make it into our weekly podcast, and we are making these available to our listeners for a modest fee, $1.99 a download, to help support the Skeptic's Guide as well as get some extra material. Also, we have an update on our summer event. As we announced last week, we are going to be having a Skeptics Guide, New England Skeptical Society, Skeptic 100th uh, episode summer skeptical blowout. And that will be happening on it's August 11th. That is a good name. It's very short and pithy. I would have added spectacular in there somewhere, but go on. Okay. Well, that's just you. And the update is... It's going to be taking place in New York City. Yay. So that will hopefully help all of you plan. We actually do have a venue which we are we have almost booked, and I don't want to say it until we've actually signed on the dotted line, but it's, we're definitely going to have it in New York. By next week, we should have the venue and all the attendant details. So listen on for, for further episodes, for more details, and also, of course, check the, the Skeptic's Guide website uh, for all the final details on that. I'm referring to the event as 811. So, 811. That's right. <laughs> also happens to be Jay's birthday, but that's okay. Now, and Jay, yeah. you um, you wanted to plug a video from one of our listeners? Well, not one of our not just one of our listeners, uh, Mike that runs the sgufans.net website. I uh, took a really cool video of the latest shuttle launch and you can hear him in the background commenting on how cool and nice it is. Uh, I'm sure he's going to have it on his site, but I, uh, I thought it would be cool if we just put the link in the notes page so everyone can get quick access to it. His site meaning the Skeptics Guide fan yeah. site, SGU fan yep. site. Yes, right. Okay. Yeah, I'll take a look at that. Sounds interesting. Well, thank you all once again. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, thank Steve, you, Steve and all. Until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. Bow, chicka, waka, waka, bow, bow, bow. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Endless delays.